told mommy there was a monster in my closet. She smiled and told me there was nothing to be scared of because monsters weren't real. I told her they were real and she should come in my room and see. But mommy was tired and she said she'd look another time. That night I got to sleep in her bed. Mommy's room was safe. I liked it there. My closet monster scared me all the time. I begged mommy to get rid of him, but she just kept telling me that there was nothing there. I told her that she had to look hard, but she looked regular and told me to keep that door closed if it frightened me. I pushed my toy box in front of it, but eventually I needed a dress and mommy moved it back. This is foolish. You have to use your closet. There is no monster, mommy said. He's not what you think he is, I told her. But she just took a deep breath and closed the closet door. The closet monster only came out at night. He crawled through a tiny door in the back of my closet that led to his world. I bet his world smelled like wet towels that got left in the washing machine for too long. And I bet the ground in his world is made of crumbly black dirt, the kind mommy had to keep vacuuming off my floor. I don't know where it's all coming from, she'd say while pressing on the sides of her head. I knew. Most often, he just looked at me from the far side of my room. He'd come out of the closet and stare. He tried to get me to go with him, but I always said no and ran to find mommy. He didn't want to get caught, so he never made any noise, only gestured with his hands. By the time I came back, if I didn't get to sleep with mommy, he was always gone. He looked like a scarecrow somebody forgot about in August, and now it was November. His big brown coat was covered in holes and spots and splotches. He wore a big floppy hat that covered his eyes, if he even had eyes. One night he got braver, and when I tried to leave the room, he stood in front of my door. I don't think he thought I would do it, but I screamed. Mommy came flying in just in time to hear the closet door close while she was looking at me right in the face. She had to believe me now, which made me excited. But Mommy wasn't excited. I saw her hear the click, and I smiled. Her face turned the color of a glue stick, and her eyes got big. She looked around without moving her head, and her breathing got loud and fast like she just ran from the mailbox to the stop sign. He's in there, I said. If you open the door now, he may not have gotten back to his world yet. Mommy looked at me like I was a bunch of bees coming straight at her. Then she looked at the floor and saw the crumbly dirt again. She bent down to pick it up with her hand, but just then we heard the door to the other world open and Mommy ran for the closet throwing that door open and there was nothing. You have to go in, look harder. Remember, I told you, I said to her. This time she did it. And I guess she found the door pretty fast because I heard her scream. I ran into the closet behind her to see what the world was like on the other side, but it was just a path to a teeny tiny room I had never seen before. The floor was lined with soggy coffee filters because I guess you need coffee to be scary in the middle of the night. And the walls had hundreds of pictures taped on them. And the pictures were of me, sleeping. 
Some of them had the eyes colored in black, and some had burn marks on the edges. In the middle of the room stood the monster, looking mommy right in the face. Dad? She said in an awful whisper. The closet monster took off his hat. He did have eyes, and they looked just like mommy's. I'm Holly. Oh <laughs> my god. <laughs> oh. Oh, good lord. Tell the people who you are. <laughs> um, I've forgotten. Ooh. Uh, I. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I really hated that one. I did say you would hate it. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. delirious when I wrote oh it. Oh my god. I didn't even know if it made sense. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Ew, <Holly>. Ew. <laughs> Yeah, that's a creepy one. Yeah. Um I won't say do you want to hear something even creepier, but I mm-hmm. wrote it in the style of Junie B. Jones books. If any of you have uh-huh. read Junie B. Jones books, that's how she talks. Um, and I was thinking about like, oh, what's like a kid's voice like at that age? And I read them to Violet, like all of them, so many of them. So I was like, oh, she says funny words like she just looked regular instead of looking hard. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, that would be like a fun device to put in something that was very, very frightening. Yep, <laughs> it sure was. So, and also, I should say before we get into this case, this case is not about that specific thing happening. It's about... What if it was? No. (laughs) I, like, know only a tiny bit of this case when I, like, I just did a quick run-through. And so I was not expecting that opening. (laughs) I also have only been able to write overnight right now because um, I have had full-time kid duty all the time. And um, my husband went back to playing gigs because his wrist is good enough to play gigs. So I could only write, like, literally overnight. Yeah. And it was, like, 5 o'clock in the morning when I wrote that. I was delirious. Mm -hmm. And then I sat in here by myself while the sun was coming up and recorded it. Right. Fun. It was a delight. And I had to listen to that as the sun was going down. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So gross. But anyway, yeah, this case is is more about, like, evil lurking in your family that you can't see. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, like, how can I communicate that in a different way? Well, you did it. Thank you. I hope it was effective. Ugh. I guess I should write them all, like, very sleep-deprived and confused. There you go. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> anyway. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. 
I hope you all didn't miss us, miss us too much last week. We took a precious day off. It was, it was more like a half a day, but we did it mm-hmm. to try and relax like a little bit, which we're not very good at relaxing, but we made it happen. And since we're both uh, incredibly busy humans, one day off makes all the difference when it comes to creating. So I'm looking forward to the fall when we can get back on a schedule and do all the fun we would be dead things I have planned in my head. Summer when you're a parent is it's like a lot. It is. So much. It is. The first half of it is great. It's sunny and warm and you're like enjoying time with your family. You're swimming and exploring and going to farmer's markets and having barbecues and making memories. But by the middle of August, you are worn down to one raw nerve by being the cruise director of your own home. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do a good job, your kids will end up sitting on tech all day, which, if you're anything like me, makes your brain goblins activate. Leslie, this is where we really want to go off on a three-hour tangent about YouTubers, but we won't. We won't, because we'll have to edit it out again. Yes, that's right. (laughs) I just want everyone to know that that exists on the digital cutting room floor somewhere. (laughs) We took it out for you. We're going to have people now that are like, but I want to hear it. You don't. No, you don't. We're so mad. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, that is unless you want to pay $10,000 for a part-time day camp that goes past July, then your kids are occupied. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't want to pay that much money? Well, dust off your whistle. You're a camp now. (laughs) The name of my camp is Camp Frisosted. It's a hybrid of frustrated and exhausted. Mm -hmm. What's your camp name? Oh, God, I don't know. I wasn't prepared for camp names. I know you weren't. Surprise. (laughs) What was your camp name? Camp Frisosted. For sauce, the hybrid of frustrated and exhausted. Okay, mine would be camp teen angst. Yeah, it would. Yeah, that's what it would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I actually. So this is my my feeling about summer, right? Mm-hmm. So the in June you have like middle of June school ends. So the first two, the last two weeks of June, you're just kind of like getting your stride going. Yeah, it's, it's not like a really little, summer yet. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, we're like trying to figure everything out. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Everybody's like sleeping in mm-hmm. and wearing jammies for a whole day. And right. Stuff. And then July hits and everybody's like, all right, I'm ready to like summer it up. Yeah. Right. And then August hits and you're like, we've summered it up. And now we just have another month till school oh, starts. More. Um, and that's where I think all the camp should be is just in August. Correct. Because You're hundred percent right. We have the energy in July. Yeah, we do it in July. We got not it. Not in August. No, not in August. In and August, plus, we're done. Wouldn't you rather in August because that's when they can get used to schedules again for school? Yes. Why don't you run everything? I don't know. You should. All right. It would make a lot more sense. Well, as fun as it is to you know make up the rules for the world and make up words and slowly lose your mind live on the air, being frustrated trademark is no walk in the park. I hate the fucking park, and it can really take its toll on your appearance. The fine lines around my scowling eyes are way too visible for my liking. Mm. And I've begun to consider discount Botox. I think there's a guy in my shop, right, who will hook me up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that a a bad idea? No. No? Well, if parking lot injectables aren't an option, then there is one other solution I think we can try. Okay. I'm intrigued. Yeah. And I bet you can guess what it is. Hmm. If you're new here or never listened to the beginning of the show... (laughs) You might not be able to guess what it is, but the rest of us will know. It's an icy cold glass of validation, the hill we're dying on. That's right. And lucky us, our fiends can start pouring right now. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And 
Well, that and having someone with like a bazillion followers shout us out. So if any of you guys have a bazillion followers, let us know. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. Even I, half a bazillion. I would take that. Yeah. I would take like several thousand. Yeah. I see you yeah. blue checks. You're you out got, there somewhere. You got 3,000 or more. Hit us up. Yeah. Add us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sneak into our DMs. Yeah. Come on. Let's go. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, the better we do, the more time I can take to get all the stuff in my head into your ears. More content is what we all want, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't want to wait for that, though, you can support us over on Patreon, Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, patrons gain access to all the extra content, including extra minisodes, the full catalog of 30-minute horror movies, our weekly after-show host mortem, which is available on both video and audio formats if you want to see our faces. You'll also get uh, to enter some amazing giveaways, Zoom with us before all of our YouTube live events, which I think we are trying to do one in September, yes? We're trying to do a campfire story? Yeah. That was what we said originally. Sure. September. Yeah. It's not September yeah. yet. Okay. Back to school okay. happens, then we can do that. Whew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get an on-air toast dedicated just to you, some gifties in the mail, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media, especially if you're a... One of those bazillion follower people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are at Would Be Dead Pod just about everywhere you can imagine. Like our content, comment on it, share it, tell us when you're listening, post about your favorite episode, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your friends' neighbors. What are their names? Always our friends' neighbors. Let's see um, if we, if any of our old regulars come back for this one. <laughs> I'm wondering like the proximity in which they all live from one another. I got you. I got you. Okay, so our friends' neighbors. So like maybe Dog Walk and Carl. Yeah, and and then Pam. We love and Pam. Jim. There yeah. were there was a Pam and, and Jim. Maybe there's just a family last name. That's what I was thinking. Okay. I was just on that. Yeah. Um the McMurphys. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Our friends are having a wild time if those are their neighbors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, great. And your friends and the McMurphys. <laughs> Oh, Lord, can become <laughs> fiends and we can all hang out together. Won't that be nice? Would be really nice. It would be something. All right, then. On with the show. Okay, this week's tale is a rather grisly one. It's a British case that I think sometimes gets like lost in the sauce over here because the victim shares a last name with one of America's biggest shitbags. And we just assume it's another retelling of that story, a story which we have already covered, by the way. I know a few folks will ask for it after this. It's already there, I promise. Today, we are talking about the murder of 16-year-old Rebecca Becky Watts. And you all get it now. I can hear you from here. And I think this is an extremely important case because it demonstrates not only the concept that there can be a thin line between a cry for attention and a cry for help, but also the terrifying truth that even the people you believe to be closest to you in this world can, in reality, be total strangers. Now, my original monologue, because sometimes I write three or four, was about um, the phrase um, attention whore and why why we have turned attention into a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Because it's not. Attention is lots of things. Attention is love. Attention is affection. Attention can be help. All those things are attention. So... I prefaced that in this and I didn't change it. So here you go. Imagine I said that at one point. Didn't you just say attention is hell, Polly? Why, yes, I did. And may I say you are an excellent listener. 
Help is attention. So if you're ever having trouble figuring out why someone is acting out, particularly a child someone, it can be helpful to switch those two words around. So he's just acting like that because he wants attention. Becomes, he's just acting like that because he wants help. Mm -hmm. It hits very differently when they're said back to back. Does saying that make you sad because it could be true? And if the answer is yes, then it might be time to dig a little deeper. And this is also not an indictment of Becky's parents in any way. They really did do everything they could imagine for her. They tried so hard. And they knew she struggled. And they knew she needed help sometimes. But no parent in the whole world could ever foresee what happened to Becky ever. It's too horrible. You never, ever assume that when the only people home are your immediate family, the calls might be coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. I should mention that I have a ton of good sources this week. But the two biggest were Becky's father, Darren Galsworthy's book, The Evil Within, Murdered by Her Stepbrother, The Crime That Shocked a Nation, The Heartbreaking Story of Becky Watts by Her Father. Very descriptive title. And the documentary, The Murder of Becky Watts, The Police Tapes by British journalist Susanna Reed. I will provide links in the show notes if you want more information on this case or to witness some really chilling interrogation footage. You can check them both out. But let's zoom out on this case before we get into the details. On February 20th, 2015, friends of Darren Galsworthy were met with an unsettling sight while scrolling through their Facebook feeds. Darren had posted a large photo of his teenage daughter, Becky, along with the following caption. Caps locked, please share. Missing, 16-year-old girl, please private message if you have seen her or know anything. This is every parent's worst nightmare. You, you don't want to make that post. No, absolutely not. Friends who inquired further would receive an odd and terrifying story. Darren had seen his daughter last on the night of February 18th. Remember, it's now the 20th. Uh, Becky had asked him to make her a late-night dinner of frozen pizza and garlic bread, and he begrudgingly complied. Becky had struggled with an eating disorder in the past, so Darren always cooked her her meal whenever she asked for one. So whenever she was like, I want food, he was like, yep, no questions asked, no complaints. Even if it was 11 o'clock at night, which I think is around when it was. It was like Mm -hmm. late. He made her a plate and brought it to her room with a towel draped over his arm like a waiter at a five-star restaurant. And he stood outside her bedroom door and knocked like a good parent of a teenager and announced, your room service, ma'am. And from behind the door, Darren could hear Becky laughing before she opened it and replied, thank you, kind sir. (laughs) Cute. I know, it's really cute. Darren then said goodnight to his daughter and went to bed. That night, he has kind of a restless night of sleep and he woke up at around 3 a.m. and walked down the hallway because he could hear Becky's television was still on. Um, and her favorite show was Jackass, mm. which is not a quiet show. Right. So he could, <laughs> he could hear them, like, shouting. Um, and he knew she was sleeping because she fell asleep with the TV on a lamp. Like, me too, I get it. So he saw her asleep in her bed, all curled up, wearing uh, a blue, like, onesie pajamas. She, like, she had a ton of them when she was home. She just liked to lounge in these little onesies. I love that. Yeah, it's I'm cute. a onesie kind of girl myself. Indeed. I've seen you like a good onesie. She had a blue one on and she used to always like steal her parents clothes too. Sometimes she would sleep in her dad's old like baseball t-shirts. But this time she had on her her stepmother's green sweater. They call it a jumper. Yeah. It's a British case. So this is how Darren saw her. And then he shut off her television and went back to bed. And that's the last time he ever saw his daughter. Oh, wow. The next day, Becky had a sleepover at a friend's house. And she was gone by the time Darren came home from work. So we knew this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. The next day, she came home from the sleepover. It was at her friend Adam's house. I guess a bunch of them all slept there. It wasn't like a weird co-ed thing. Mm-hmm. It was like this. these were her tightest friends. Okay. So the next day, Becky came home at around 8.30 in the morning. 
by which time Darren had already left for work because he leaves for work at 7.30, really early. And he comes home, you know, late afternoon. Becky's stepmother, Angie, had let her in the front door because Becky had been having trouble with her key, wasn't working in the front door lock, so she had to knock and Angie let her in. So that's how we definitely know that she came home. Okay. Angie saw her. And, and she was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, like, wake you up and make you come to the door. My stupid key isn't working. Thanks. And she went straight to her room. After that, Angie got up, got ready for the day, and left to go to a doctor's appointment. And Becky is alone in the house. Angie's son, Nathan Matthews, and his girlfriend, Shauna Hoare, had let themselves into the house a few hours later. They had a key, like a hide-a-key outside the front mm-hmm. door, and they knew where it was, so they let themselves in. And when Angie returned from her doctor's appointment, they were there sitting and watching TV, and um, Becky wasn't home. But this wasn't weird for her because Becky was 16, and um, apparently she just frequently took off with her friends without having to call or tell somebody first. Yeah. I would have been raked over the coals for such behavior when I was a teen, but everybody is different, and they were like, man, no big deal. Probably just went out with a friend. There was no one home to tell. Yeah. But it is 2015. You have a phone. Everybody has a phone. Yeah, I would have texted or left a note from my mom. Exactly. Yeah, left a note, like, little post-it. Hey, I want to yeah, such and like such a Yeah, like on the home. fridge or wherever, mm-hmm. by the phone. Yeah, but apparently it wasn't weird that she didn't do that. So okay. nobody was concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess this is like a weekend? No. Um, Were they, like, on holiday or something? February 19th was a Thursday. Okay. Feb- and so, okay. yeah, so the Wednesday was and when he had 20- seen her last. And the 20th is when he made his post. Yes. So, okay. Yes. But then the 19th? Is a Thursday, so that's the day that she's just out. So she didn't have school or anything. That's what, yeah, I, I wonder if not. there's like a week. Any of our UK listeners, if you know any, any things going on that week. Yeah, because she came home at 8.30 in the morning and went to her room. I and wonder if they had off. She also did go to a special school at a hospital. She wasn't being educated in a public school. We'll get to why in a few minutes. Okay. But it could right. have been different because of that. Okay. Um, But also, yeah, it could have been just like that's the time when they have a break. I have no yeah. idea. But like. The, in nowhere was it stated which, that she was expected to be at school, and neither were any of her friends. Okay. At approximately 4 o'clock that day, so we're on to the 19th, Becky's boyfriend, Luke, came looking for her. Becky hadn't shown up to meet him somewhere that they had, like, agreed to meet. And this is totally not like her. She doesn't just, like, stand up her boyfriend ever. And she wasn't responding to any of his text messages. So this is very bizarre for him. So he goes to the house to see what's going on. And Angie, Becky's stepmother, says she she thought Becky was out with friends. She wasn't home. She's like, I, I think that she went out. Uh, she must have just forgotten that she agreed to meet you. It happens. And Shauna confirms that earlier that day, after they had gotten over, they let themselves in the house. She said that she was in the backyard smoking a cigarette, and she heard the front door slam. And they assumed that was Becky leaving the house. Okay. So Luke was very confused because this all sounded kind of weird to him. And he said, okay, have, you know, Becky call me when she gets home. And if you hear anything from her, please let me know. I'll see you later. But Becky didn't come home that night either. And still, Darren and Angie didn't worry because apparently she also would just sleep over at friend's house without telling them. Okay. Again, like I, to me, me personally, this is a very foreign concept. Because mm-hmm. at 16, I c- couldn't be gone for 24 solid hours without reporting to my parents and not having them right. freak the fuck out. Right. But they said, no, nah, sometimes she just slept over and she didn't mm-hmm. let us know. We just knew she was with her friends and it was fine. Right. But this is like good context to know because right. every house is different. So yeah. like 
had that been, had they been a household where there's always a note left. That would have been message, a red flag. It would have been sooner that they would have been on it. But, right. Yeah. But they didn't because that's, yeah, this is how she did mm-hmm. things. So um, it's fine. They assumed she was just having too much fun to check in. No big deal. But then the next afternoon came around and at about 2.30, a group of Becky's friends and her boyfriend, Luke, arrived at the house together to look for her. Oh, good. So okay. they are concerned. Mm-hmm. The friends are very worried because they have been texting Becky and calling Becky and the boyfriend went to her house and they right. cannot get in touch with her anywhere. They are very nervous, even right. if the parents are not yet. Right. But also now if all the friends are there, the parents can exactly. see like, okay, well then where would she be? Exactly. Okay. They tell her family that no one had heard from her in two days. These were the people that her family assumed Becky was with. Mm-hmm. So now they're alarmed. She only had a small, tight-knit group of friends. And if she wasn't with them or her boyfriend, then there's nowhere else she would have been. Something was wrong. So Angie, um, at this point in time, because it's 2.30, I think, Darren was at work. So this is the Friday. He is at work. So she calls him at work, and he comes straight home. And then everyone starts calling Becky, who never answers, obviously. Um, Her biological mother and her brother hadn't even heard from her. Her grandmother hadn't heard from her. They're trying to, like, reach to anybody who she possibly could talk to, and no one had heard at all from her. She just seemed to have vanished into thin air. With all her friends assembled in her family home, so everybody important to her is, like, in this room, it was pretty easy to put together a timeline and pinpoint when she had vanished. They determined that it had been around 11.15 a.m. on February 19th, which in this moment was yesterday to them. It had to have been before Angie returned home from her doctor's appointment at 12.45, and after Shauna and Nathan had arrived at the house. Darren then um, says, okay, um, he asked Becky's best friend, Courtney, to go up to her room with him and see if any clothing or essential items that you might need when you were like, I don't know, running away were missing. Because if anyone knew Becky's wardrobe and her things, it's going to be her best girlfriend, right? Right. Okay, so he takes the best friend up to her room, and Courtney looks around and notices that Becky's blue puffer jacket was missing, and it's Bristol in February, so if she was going outside, she would have put on her coat. Um, but her purse and makeup bags were still there, which is a huge red flag for Courtney because her best friend did not leave the house without a face on ever. It would have been extremely out of character for her to go somewhere for like days and not bring makeup mm-hmm. or even just leave without makeup on. Furthermore, she wouldn't have left her purse if she went out. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense either. That's got your like ID and stuff in it. You're not going to do that. These essentials were left behind but her phone and her laptop were missing. Now, it's not weird to take your phone when you leave the house, but Becky did not routinely bring her laptop anywhere. Mm-hmm. It just kind of lived in a room. She didn't, like, travel around with it. So Darren also quietly noted that the pajamas he had last seen his daughter wearing were missing as well. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. Nobody could explain what little evidence they had. So they have all these, like, little fragments of things, but they don't know how they add up. And no one had heard back from Becky from any of the numerous calls they made. So this situation was getting more and more troubling by the minute. Now, by now, it is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, approximately 29 hours after they had determined Becky had left the house, which was long enough uh, of a time missing to call the damn cops. So they did. Local police took all of Darren's information and dispatched a couple officers to come to his house. After they hung up, Darren sent Becky's friends home. He's like, listen, we called the police. Thank you. We looked around the house. 
this is going to be long and the cops are not going to want to deal with like a ton of kids in the house. Go home. We will call you as soon as we hear anything. And it should be said that like Becky's family and these kids have a good relationship to this day. Like okay. they have worked together. They do still like visit each other and stuff. So Great. this was a good thing. And the kids all say, okay, we'll do whatever we can. Just keep us posted. Good night. So with nothing to do but wait, Darren thought one more smoke signal he could send up that might just find its way to his daughter would be social media. Everybody had Facebook. Everybody saw Facebook. Becky had an account. Her friends had accounts. The family had accounts. Everybody she knew was on there. But Darren was not very social media savvy. So he called his stepson, Nathan, over to help him format a post. Nathan, who had known Becky almost her entire life, was more than happy to help. They chose a photo wrote a caption, and sent it into the cyber world. Now, I've seen Darren's Facebook page. He does not post a lot of complicated anything that checks out completely. I think why he needed help was that he needed to, like, get a photo off of her page and yeah. put it over on his. Mm -hmm. So this all makes perfect sense to me. How old is Nathan? Today? Just, or at this point? At this point, like, What's their age difference? Is I think 28 when this it's significant they have like oh. a big age difference oh wow okay he's in his mid-20s okay basically. and that's her, her stepbrother yes that's okay. her stepbrother that's angie's son yes okay i think they have like yeah i think he was like 27 they have they have like an 11 year age difference okay and then and then becky has does she have a she brother? has a natural brother yes that's there isn't a lot i mean I'm, I'm gonna tell you about daniel yeah in a few fine. minutes yeah but after a certain point, there is no more information on him because I don't think he wants to be talked about. Okay. So okay. that's fine. He's not living with them at this point. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. Okay. So he had, they had called Daniel and Becky's um, biological mother, Tanya, and said, have you heard from her? And they did say, no, we haven't. And okay. they check in periodically, but okay. they're not in the house. So put up the picture and they write a caption. Within minutes, it's being shared all over. Darren's hoping it's going to find its way to Becky. By 6.30 p.m., the police arrived at their the Gullsworthy Matthews Watts residence, because there's three last names in that house. Mm -hmm. The police asked all the standard questions, you know, like, when did you last see her? What kind of mood was she in? What do you think? You know, who, who does she talk to? Just standard cop questions. And then they give the standard response of, she probably just ran away. Of course. But Darren assured the police that this was not the case even a little bit. Everybody was insistent. They said Becky was a very vulnerable and dependent child who couldn't even get on the bus on her own, let alone run away without any money or clothing. Furthermore, all of her friends were looking for her. Who exactly would she have run away with? Darren scoured her Facebook page for anyone new or unusual she might have met online, but came up empty-handed. Now, this stuff all also rem reminds me so much of Caitlin Akins's case. Mm -hmm. When they're saying, like, well, she did all this savvy stuff on the Metro. And Lisa was like, no, she didn't. Mm -hmm. She absolutely could not have navigated this. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, we're saying the same thing about Becky in this case. No, she could not have run away. She did not have the independence to do that kind of thing. Also, even if even if somebody, so say, say that was the case, mm -hmm. the fact that they aren't just savvy enough to just know where they were going, there would have been people that would have been asking, mm -hmm. like, she would have asked people for help probably to like oh is this the right train like the driver would have remembered yeah, for there sure cameras you know around yeah. for that kind of thing so that's it's like whenever a parent is just like my child has never done that before 
It's just like, okay, well, then people, she would have had to ask for help from somebody. So they wouldn't have just flawlessly done it immediately. Right. <laughs> if they would have made their presence known to s- several people. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> somebody, like, some sweet mother in the area would have been like, that child looks lost. Yeah, or at least, like, the ticket counter person would be like, she asked 18 questions. She has no idea what she's yeah, doing. I had to make a map. <laughs> it seems weird, but I drew it. Yeah. Um. Th- but... I just, this always bothers me because when when families say something like that, that is like intrinsic to this person that is missing, we need to like believe them and listen. Right. Okay, don't keep going down that line. Yeah. Or like you said, be looking for an outlier. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, I have to give it to law enforcement in this case, though, and the community that Becky lived in because they did act very quickly and effectively and they did not dwell on her running away. Okay, good. They said that, but they didn't like stall on it for mm-hmm. a long time, thankfully. And I do believe that they, because mm-hmm. the police did all of their homework. So I'm sure they immediately were like bus stations, train stations, airports, check everything. Right. And they didn't. But also it's like you would rather it be someone that ran away that you could find versus someone that's something yeah. more worse that's happened. Yeah. I know. So it's, I understand that that's still a question that you ask. It's definitely a question, but I, I just think in a lot of cases, uh, law enforcement ends up wasting time. Yes. Yeah. And Agreed. that's the problem. And they didn't seem to be doing that. Right. So no, they good. didn't do that here, thankfully. Uh, though, go, though Becky would go on to be missing for 10 days total, I think the investigation was very well executed and the search efforts were thorough. Okay. So they did a very good job. Great. Though they... Police did kind of leave Darren on the dreaded runaway note that very first night. The police were far from done. Darren and Angie went to bed that night, but of course didn't sleep. Who could possibly sleep under those circumstances? I'd be spiraling. The next morning, Darren posted to Facebook again, quote, please, if anyone has seen or heard from my daughter, just tell me, no, she is safe. She went missing Thursday 19th at 11.15 a.m. to meet her boyfriend and never arrived, so he came here looking for her. She hasn't been seen since by, since by any of her friends. Police have started a search. I'm really scared now. I want her home. So they assumed that when she left the house, that's when she was going to meet Luke, even though it wasn't the time they had decided on. Mm-hmm. And then she just never turned up to see him. Then Darren posted again, same day. Still no news on Becky, on Becky's whereabouts. And then he posted for a third time. She is still missing. Mm. So this is just him just trying to like right. get... Later on, he goes on to post something where... The book he writes is good. I mean, it, it it puts you right into the mind of a person experiencing this. And I sobbed my way through part of it. But it's interesting because he has more self-awareness than most people do in this situation. And he very much says, the next post, he's like, I posted this, I put this post up and then people like came at me for it because they thought it was weird and gross. But like, I couldn't think of anything else. At one point he was like, my daughter was on her period when she met, miss, went missing. So if you find like random bloody clothes, like your child's my child's age or they know each other and you find that in your house, she could have been there. Right. Now to me, I'm like, yeah, okay. Oh, interesting. That's like, yeah. Uh, I get that it's kind of like a gross thing, but I also get like that could be crucial of, evidence yeah. if the police found that. Right. Some people got real grossed out about it. But listen, I think that that was kind of smart. So Periods are a thing people get over it. Yeah, we have them. If somebody's dripping blood, we need to use that. Yeah, that's evidence. So. Yeah. I'm on your side, Darren. I get it. I would have mm-hmm. said it too. So meanwhile, uh, that morning, the police returned. So we're now on to, I believe, the 21st. It was different officers this time who introduced themselves as family liaisons. So these are the people that are going to deal directly with Becky's family. 
They explained that more officers would be arriving shortly to search the house and swab for Becky's DNA. So they wanted her like toothbrush and hairbrush and stuff like that. The investigation had now begun. And and this is like the next morning. So like I said, they don't waste time. Mm -hmm. Doubtless at this point, the police had done some digging into their family history. So let's catch up with them quickly, shall we? We shall. Rebecca Marie Watts was born on June 3rd, 1998 to parents Darren Galsworthy and Tanya Watts. Darren and Tanya had quite a tumultuous on-again, off-again relationship that had resulted in one child, uh, in one other child, a son. This was Becky's older brother, Daniel, who was born on February 19th, 1995. 20 years to the day later, Becky would go missing. Right, that's wild. It happened on her brother's 20th birthday. So that's probably also weird because he was like, she hasn't wished me happy birthday or anything either. Mm -hmm. Plus, he says in an interview, like he has done a couple interviews, but he doesn't appear in a lot of stuff. And I just want to be respectful of that. But he does say it became, it wasn't my birthday anymore. Right. How could it be? Yeah. It would never be known as his birthday ever again after that year. Mm -hmm. That's just, it makes me so sad for him. Yeah. So. Back to Darren and Tanya. Their relationship had soured long before Becky was actually born. The pair had separated shortly after Daniel was born, but shared custody of him, and Darren diligently paid child support. So this is like, they don't get along with one another, but they are co-parenting effectively. But old habits die hard, and one night in October of 1997, the couple had a one-night stand when they were, like, handing off Mm -hmm. Daniel, and this resulted in a pregnancy. But when Tanya showed up pregnant, Darren was like, that's not my baby. Mm. We're not even together. That's not my kid. But she insisted that it was. And he wouldn't even agree to put his name on her birth certificate. Right. Because he was like, well, we're not together. It was just one night. But um, he agreed and he met little Becky anyway. And he fell in love with her right away. By the time she was two, Darren had worked up enough money for DNA testing because this is something he'd have to pay for himself because it's not like medically necessary. Mm -hmm. And um, wouldn't you know it, she was his child after all. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At about the same time, so this is when Becky's two, Daniel had rekindled a romance with a woman he had fallen madly in love with as a teenager. And her name was Angie Matthews. Though their timing had never lined up in the past. Like, this is a star-crossed lover situation. Mm. They saw each other. They were so into each other. But then they didn't see each other for a while. And they both married somebody else. And then they had kids. And then they got divorced. But they didn't get married. <laughs> She was married, I think. He was not. Right. Um, They were just together. Yeah. So both of them knew, though, that they were, like, destined to be together. And this time, when they reconnected, they saw each other on the street. Okay. It was like a star-crossed moment. And they made it work. Darren had two children, and Angie had one, a 12-year-old son named Nathan. Nathan's father had never been in the picture for him. So when Angie got pregnant, I think that's when they had this very tumultuous breakup. It was bad enough that Angie had to move afterwards. Mm. And through a series of difficult events, it would be determined that Nathan would stay on living with Angie's mother on weekdays so that he could stay in the same school. He's, you know, 12, 11, 12. At this point, he is anyway. I don't know. That's not adding up in my head. It says he's, the book says that he stayed living with Angie's mother so that he could go to the same school. Okay. But this breakup happened when he was a baby. But was it when... She met Darren and yeah, maybe, they moved Yeah, maybe they together. moved together. This That's is not what very I, clear. Okay. In the, I, I gathered it as okay. when she met Darren. 
they moved in together and probably lived outside of where he was going to school. So I guess that's he stayed the move. with his, yeah. his grandma. Yeah, but it says it's a little weird on the timeline, but that has to be. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. He's a baby. So they want to not disrupt his routine, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense yeah. to me. That's good for the kid. But Angie's a, a great mom, and she would walk from her house to her mother's house, which was a few miles, to walk him to school every day, then go to work, and then walk back to school to take him back home and walk him back to her mother's house. Okay. She hoofed it every day because she couldn't afford bus fare to do that, but mm-hmm. so she could be with him. Okay. All right. On his trips to school. And on the weekends, he would stay with uh, with her. Maybe she just also had, like, a tiny place and, like, also not in the school no, system. No, because they all end up moving into this house. Oh. It's a big house. Okay. It was a, it was a school right. thing. All right, all right. For sure. Which I get it. Like, some kids don't want their routine disrupted. No, I, I mean, I know I know kids that are living with their grandparents yeah. and their parents see them, like, yeah. most of the week. So, this just it just speaks to Angie's character that she was like, okay, I'm going to not, like, interrupt his life, but I'm also going to do this monumental effort just so I have this check-in yeah. time with him every single day. That's apparent. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's apparent for sure. Um, and Nathan, who had never had a father to speak of, was at first a little resistant of Darren, like, not totally trustful of him, obviously. But soon he took to him, and they got along very well, and they were very much father and son. That okay. happened pretty fast. And Nathan and Daniel... Becky's brother also got along fine. They had a big age gap, but Nathan really liked little Daniel because he would bring him up to his room and they'd play PlayStation together. Cool. And he thought it was like really cute and Daniel probably kind of idolized him and mm-hmm. he liked that. So this is a relationship that seemed to work. They seemed to enjoy each other's company. But the same could not be said for Becky, though. Even though she's a baby, she's a two-year-old at this point, Nathan... um, thought she was annoying because she's a very fussy, stubborn toddler, and she was given to frequent screaming tantrums because she's a toddler. But Nathan was very annoyed by this. He just said she wanted all of the attention all the time, and she nothing was wrong with her. He also didn't really like that his mother was immediately super close to Becky, and they became inseparable. Mm. Becky just, like, immediately, like, latched onto her, and they were very close. Okay. Becky was attached to Angie's side whenever she was around her, and Nathan got pretty jealous. Mm-hmm. Didn't like that. Soon, Darren and Angie were together so often. Yeah, see, like, this is in the timeline of the book, so I don't know. They have already moved in together at some point. Let's just say these, these, these events are a little bit hazy, mm-hmm. but they happen nonetheless. Uh, so they all live together now. But just a year later, Darren would receive some horrifying news. Uh, a social worker informed him that his children had been taken into foster care. So now at this point in time, when the kids are really little, Darren has them on weekends. He has Becky and Daniel on weekends. And during the week, they're with Tanya, their mother, who had not been taking great care of them. Oh, no. They would show up at Darren and Angie's house, like, in too small, dirty clothing. Mm. They looked like they hadn't had baths in a long time. They just, they just look like kids that weren't being taken care of. Okay. And Darren and Angie would buy them clothes and send them home with them. They never had them on, ever. It's a real bizarre, not great situation. But the kids have been showing up to school looking like this, too. And they also began to look very frightened a lot of the time. Mm. Like they would sit very still in one spot on the sofa because they looked like they were scared to move or, or speak. Mm. Uh, so the school did notice this. Good, good on the school. And they reported them um, and their mother, Tanya. And so they were put into foster care. 
because, you know, social worker came out and evaluated them. They don't look great. The situation's not great. They take them. And they tell Darren, like, you're going to have to fight for full custody of these kids. We can't just give it to you, which I don't know why. In the United States, I think you can. They would at least go to stay with the dad. Yeah, no, they, they didn't. figured that out. They, That's so weird. Isn't that weird? I thought it was yeah. too. They put them right into care. So Darren and Angie then enter like a four-month fight. They make them take parenting classes and stuff. Yeah. It's wild to gain full custody, which was traumatic for all of them because the kids are in foster care all this time. Mm-hmm. And there is no word on what their foster care was like or what their foster families was like. But they do make a comment that they, Daniel, like, wouldn't talk about it. Mm. He said, how, how were your families? Were they kind to you? What was it like? And, you know, Becky's a baby, so she has nothing to say. But Daniel just said, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, it's so sad. Which to me says, not good. Not good or just the whole thing is traumatizing. Yeah, I'm sure it is. From his mom and then I'm getting to stay with his dad, like yeah. in a house that they're comfortable in. Yeah, it's a very confusing situation. Yeah. And I really only have one perspective here mm-hmm. and no other articles go into these details. Mm-hmm. So it's all just worth mentioning. This is like the background right. on it. It's also more, um, it makes more sense why Becky would have been so attached to Angie right yeah. away. Yeah, because she was like caring about her like a mom and her, her real yeah. mom was not. And she just liked, yeah, she just, yeah, it was very sweet. Yeah. And they mentioned a lot that, you know, a lot of things about Becky that were like, it was hard for her to make friends. She had tantrums. She was nervous. She was this. She was that. And school was hard for her. I'm thinking like, I feel like she had something else going on that at the time they just couldn't address or didn't see. Mm -hmm. Because I see that in other kids too. Right. Nothing big or bad, but I'm like, oh, does it kid have like ADD and they need to kind of, who knows? But they were very, like they paid attention to everything she did. So mm-hmm. this is not lack of attention. So anyway, Darren and Angie did eventually win the custody case, thankfully, and the kids came to live with them. Well, Darren's kids came to live with them full time, but Nathan was still living at his grandmother's. Right. I can't imagine he loved that a whole lot. He's watching these other kids go stay with his mom full time and he's not there. But shortly after this, he did come to live with them and they all lived together in their house and everyone was one big family. Mm-hmm. For a while, things were good. There were vacations and family dinners, happy Christmases and birthday cakes, all the normal trappings of happy family life. Having settled into one home, the children all attended local schools. And for Becky, school was hard. She did not want to be away from her parents or her home. She's one of those kids that would like hold on to your leg when you try to leave the daycare. Yeah. For sure. Then it was difficult for her to make new friends. She was, you know, didn't know how to approach other kids. She kind of would stay alone and hope they would come and talk to her. Thankfully, her cousin Brooke was at the same um, school with her. And so this made everything like a little bit easier for her to transition because she had somebody after a little while. Um, And Bristol is an extremely tight-knit community, despite being one of the most densely populated cities in the UK. So there are families that look out for each other there. Bristol is about 40 square miles in total, but has over 500,000 inhabitants, which shakes out at over 3,000 people per square kilometer. That is a lot of people crammed into a little area. The area is divided into a series of hills, which seem to be smaller neighborhoods. So we've talked about other cities like this before, where the area is big, but then there's a bunch of like small towns within the big city, basically. This is the impression I got with it. Uh, Like everything in Europe, it's been around since history began. Twice in the past 10 years, Bristol has been named as one of the safest and happiest places to live in the country. So it's like a nice place to be. Um, not a bad place to raise a family and probably not a place where they're used to a horrifying, violent crime happening against an innocent young girl. 
Leslie, I think you can tell us a little bit more about our location this week. I can. I know some fun things about Bristol. Please, bring it on. Bristol came from the Old English word Brysikstow, meaning meeting by the bridge, which is a reference to the bridge built over the river, river Avon in England around 1000 CE, where modern-day Bristol is located. All right, so I have, how many facts do I have here? I have 14 fun facts for you guys today. So one, Bristol has the Green Award for Most Sustainable City in the UK. Oh. Yeah. I would never have guessed that. It's pretty urban. Yeah, but it's a very green. Good for them. Yeah. And that also is one reason why it is one of the safer cities as well. The world's first modern bungee jump took place at the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol on April 1st, 1979. Is that cool? Yeah. So, David, I have a whole history here because I went down a rabbit hole. So, David Kirk and Simon Keeling were members of the Oxford University Dangerous Sports Club. And this is going to remind me a lot of, um, and Jill, if you're listening, it reminds me a lot of uh, Gilmore Girls and the Yale, like, Secret Society Club. Skull and Bones, which I have talked about. Well, this other one that okay. they, like, went into. But I, maybe just one that they, like, made up, too. Anyway, so they came up with an idea after discussing the vine-jumping ritual of Ven- Venuatu, which is located in the southern coast of the Pentecost Island, which I'll explain in a moment. So David Kirk jumped off the bridge in a top hat and tails with champagne in his hand, followed by Simon Keeling, going over the edge in the second jump. Uh, Right after their jumps, they were arrested and placed in the back of a police car. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. uh, They were released on the promise that they would never do it again, but they continued with jumps in the U.S. from the Garden uh, Gate Bridge to the Royal George Bridge and then spreading the concept worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So back to vine jumping as a ritual because I was like, what is this? Yeah, I want to know. Um, and then it also made me think, like, did we uh, take something that wasn't ours? <laughs> Always. Yeah. So Always. <laughs> the people of uh, Venuatu prepare for their harvest season by first participating in land diving. A good dive will ensure a bountiful yam crop that year. So only the men in the village are allowed to land dive. One at a time, men and even some boys climb a wooden tower constructed in the middle of a jungle clearing and stands between 20 to 30 meters or 66 to 98 feet for us Americans. Yes, thank you. Uh, Between 10 to 20 men per village climb and tie vines around their ankles before jumping into the air. If all goes as planned, the vines will snap taut just in time to prevent the diver from hitting the ground, allowing him to swing close enough so that his shoulders barely brush the soft mud below. Oh my God, so many people died. One of the main reasons they do the jumpings at like this time of year is because the vines are most elastic, so similar to a bungee. And so it's actually, um, it's interesting because the younger boys that do it, they are... um, they go to try to prove that they are, like, becoming a man. So it's this whole thing. Um, but I have more to share on this tradition, but I'm going to save it for Hostmortem because okay. 
there is more and we don't need to know about it right now. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. All right. Then. <laughs> but I just thought it was interesting. And I felt like uh, if we're going to talk about bungee jumping now, we need to talk about where it came from. Because yeah. the people from that area are actually very serious that like they think they should be getting royalties from people like bungee jumping because it was their thing. I don't think that's that was appropriate. Royalties on that's just like an I know activity. it's a it's something that they're working on because they're they feel like their ritual was stolen. Well, I mean, and I that's fair. Mm-hmm. Which, but you, it was specifically like those guys specifically got their idea to bungee jump from this ritual. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't so think I don't there's know. any way they can capitalize on that. But well, they're trying. Okay. So, three, Bristol is home to a natural slide. They have all these fun things. Yeah, they sure do. The Slidey Rock, as it is affectionately named by locals, is located near the Clifton Suspension Bridge and is a natural slide that has formed on the cliff face. Anyone who grew up in Bristol has probably slid down the rock. So, I wondered. I was like, oh, Becky might have done this. Maybe. Maybe she's some rock slide. Mm-hmm. Four, there's a book bound with human skin on display in Bristol. We found all the skin books. We're yeah. doing great. Yes. John Horton was accused of murdering his girlfriend in 1821 and was subsequently hanged in Bristol. The doctor who testified against him took his body for medical purposes. And that's like in quotes, medical purposes. Mm -hmm. And tanned parts of his skin in order to bind a book, which you can go and look at in Bristol today. I'm going to go. Yeah. Take me there. Bristol is the world's largest manufacturer of hot air balloons. Who knew? Yeah. And they have their own balloon fiesta. And this is Europe's largest annual meeting of hot air balloons, attracting over 130 hot air balloons from across the globe. Look at that. Number six, the chocolate Easter egg was invented in Bristol. Thank you, Bristol. As well as inventing the first solid chocolate bar in 1847, Bristol's chocolate company Fry's created the first ever chocolate Easter egg in 1873. I think that was called Fry's. Yeah. <laughs> and Fries? spelled F-R-Y. Oh. Number seven, the hatchet. So this is another, they they love human skin in this area. Who doesn't? The hatchet pub's front door may be made from human skin. The whole door? The whole door. That's a lot. So dating back to 1606, the hatchet club is said to have a front door that underneath the layers of black paint and tar is made from human skin. Which that's another one I'll go deeper into our host morning. Bristol is a popular TV and film location. Bristol is ranked second in the UK for film production and photography. So TV shows like Doctor Who, Sherlock, Skins, which is like a raunchier Degrassi, and The Young Ones, which they keep talking about The Young Ones. I don't know what it is, but The Young Ones. Big deal for, yeah. Have all been filmed in Bristol. Blackbeard was born in Bristol. Cool. So one of the world's most famous pirates, Blackbeard, was born on the harbor side and even had a hideout in Redcliffe Cave. And I also think he used to visit that pub, too, with the skinned, with the door skin. He, he's responsible for that? I'm going to say that. I know. <laughs> I'm going to put that in there. Number 10, Bristol Zoo is the fifth oldest zoo in the, wor- in the world. So if you're like mm. a zoo goer and you like to like hit all the cool zoos, that's one to put on your list. Hmm. There are 36 Bristols in the world. Get out of here. Guess who has most of them? Who? America. We do. We stole it. We do. We have lots of Bristols. We have 29 of them, to be exact. Oh, boy. Out of 36. So that's all. Got it. Number 12. Bristol was the first university to have a dedicated drama department. So the Department of Drama 
opened in 1946, and alumni include Simon Pegg, David Williams, Matt Lucas, and Emily Watson. Well, all right then. Yeah. Number 13, the Odeon Cinema is said to be haunted. On on May 29, 1926, someone broke into the cinema and fired five shots at the screen. A sixth shot was heard in the Odeon manager's office, Mm -hmm. where it was discovered that the cinema manager had been killed. So, if you notice that screen three is unusually cold, it's said to be haunted by the ghost of the murdered cinema manager. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then my last little one was... Part of NYC was built with rubble from Bristol. Rubble? So, yeah, part of New York City. So the Waterside Plaza in Manhattan, New York City, was built using landfill from Bristol after the Second World War. The rubble was used to stabilize American ships on their return from the UK and created what's now known as the Bristol Basin in New York. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't it, um, like, Wallace and Gromit and Sean the Sheep based That's in there, also, too? Yeah, they have, like, their, um, the creator, like, has his production facility that's in cool. there. Yeah. Well, that's Bristol. That's Bristol. Oh, natural fun things to visit and skin. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> so, that is where our family that we're speaking of lives. And in his book, Darren frequently references how he has spent his whole life in Bristol, and it is a community that really showed up for him and how grateful he is to everybody there and how how close a community and supportive a community they were. So it is a good place to live. Yes. After they had all settled in and moved into this one house, everybody's together now, life moved along as it always did. Nathan developed an interest in archery and shooting. They mention a lot that he really likes shooting. So Darren figured he was outdoorsy and enrolled him in the Army Cadets. Okay. Like you, this boy likes to shoot guns, so let's take him to a place where they're going to teach him how to use one, and he can use one on a target. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the cadets are like a boy scouty pre army program, basically where teen boys shoot guns in the woods and go through like simulation boot camp. It sounds kind of like a nightmare to me, but Nathan loved it, and he stayed on for three years and continued into the army reserves. Yeah. He also developed a love of cars and motorcycles. He liked to buy them. He liked to drive them. And he liked to work on them. So he fixed them up. He liked a good car project. Okay. Darren taught him, taught Nathan how to drive. And he bought him his first moped. He, like, taught him how to work on cars. This is a lot of very classic father-son stuff they did together. Mm-hmm. It just is demonstrative of the fact that they had a very normal father-son type relationship. And even better than a lot of, like, stepson relationships that begin at 12. Are. Right. But life was not so easy for Becky as she transitioned from primary to secondary school. Things changed for her. She no longer had the few friends that she made as they had matriculated into different schools. So, like, the district branches off. And they mm-hmm. went into one and she did not go to that one. Uh, the girls at her new school, not like Becky at all. At 11 years old, Becky was ostracized and bullied pretty hard. The girls called her names and would, like, kind of socially isolate her so that she was very alone. They would push her around and they ripped her jacket off her at one point. They were like, yeah, this is really nasty. They made it their singular mission to make her life a living hell. Becky would sit at home and cry about it every day after school. And she would cry to her parents and wonder why no one liked her. 
Mm. Which is something that breaks my heart because as a parent, I have been there. Yeah. And watching your little girl come home day after day, just lonely and despondent and so sad is one of the worst things in the world to witness. It's terrible. Right. Becky also didn't want to go to school anymore. She just didn't want, I mean, I wouldn't want to either. It sounds awful. She was scared and sad. And so unbeknownst to her parents who told her she had to go to school, she started skipping. I don't know where she went, but she was not at school and she was not at home. Eventually, Darren was informed that Becky's truancy had gotten out of hand. And if they didn't do something about it, the government would step in, you know, because mm -hmm. you can't just not go to school. And Darren was totally like knocked off his seat by that. He was flabbergasted because he thought she'd been going to school the whole time. Right. Uh, so this was very shocking to him. And to make matters worse, Becky had also started dieting at 11, citing mm. that her appearance was the reason why people maybe didn't like her. She kept saying, I'm so ugly and fat. That's why I don't have right. friends. Oh, man. I This is what I went through at that <sighs> exact age. Because what that's like fifth, sixth grade. And yeah. That's exactly what. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. my daughter's going into sixth grade. Yeah. I went to a new school in fifth grade and had a hard time yeah. like really connecting with people. And I was a chunker and didn't make the basketball mm -hmm. team. And the only other girls, there was three of us that didn't make the basketball team that year. And we were all like overweight. And so I was like, I didn't make it because I'm fat. Oh, that's <laughs> awful. And then, yeah. But luckily, this is the one good thing about Dr. Phil. He taught me a diet, <laughs> a very healthy, clean eating thing. And then I just got really active and made the basketball team the next year. But I, it was the first time I was aware of, like, my weight. So Awful. I could, like, it seems so young, but that is that time. Like, fifth grade is when you're, like, really starting to like boys and you're trying to, oh, yeah. I think know. about it. Yeah. But this, it's also, like, kind of wild for Becky because if you look at her pictures she looks like a little model she wasn't mm -hmm. in any way any of those things she was, right but disordered eating so often has very little to do with a person's actual appearance and more to do with their need for some kind of control in their exactly, life exactly yeah and Becky's diet just kept getting more and more extreme she was having her parents buy like first it was like buy me low cal stuff buy me you know, skim milk, buy me some healthier things. And then it went down to she was just eating less and less and less and less. Mm. Seeing how weak and frustrated she had become, Darren thought maybe a little fitness would be beneficial for her. And he began teaching her to box. Now, it should be noted that she became a pretty decent boxer. While not a confrontational girl in the least, if a situation came up where she had to defend herself, Becky would be more than able to do so. And this is important to remember. So back at school, the teachers had began, they, the only solution they could find to get her to go to school was they taught her in a room by herself. Oh, wow. Yep. Away from all of the other students. They figured this was protecting her, but it probably made her like a zoo exhibit. Yeah. And this is why uh, my kid is switching schools. I don't ever want her to sit in a room alone or something. Like, I can't. I can't imagine that. I cannot possibly imagine how awful that would be. But the thing is, like, changing schools or homeschooling isn't an option for everyone. Right. And neither is just not going to school anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think this was just the only thing they could come up with. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they were doing. But it couldn't have been easy for her. No. To go to school every day, walk in the doors, pass all those people, and then sit in a room alone. And everybody knows that she's sitting in a room alone. Yep, and yeah. everybody knows why. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was even hard for the kids that needed, um, you know, to be so like, say you'd have math class and you'd have a group of maybe like three kids that would get pulled out to have a special math class yeah. in another room. Yep. And you were like, where are those kids going? Yep. They're the special ed kids. Yeah. And like, yeah. That's why we just mainstream kids now. And you yeah. don't, that's also special ed classes when I was a kid were like all grades and all abilities in mm-hmm. one room. Yeah. I used to work with the kids that got pulled out. Like I would help them with math in like fourth mm-hmm. grade. And like half the time I would spend just talking to them to build their confidence because they I could tell that they were so scared to they were just embarrassed that they got pulled out. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like this situation was probably very stressful for her. Mm-hmm. And also it should be said like kids at this age are can be not great. They can't. But they right. also are all on different maturity levels because yes. everyone hits that I want to be a grown up at a different time. So if I'm right about Becky, she probably hadn't gotten there. She probably okay. still liked being a bit younger and not the, the other girls don't. That's what I've witnessed with so many other girls that age. Mm-hmm. They're just not on the same level. And it's not always their fault. They just aren't the same anymore. Right. But these girls were like terrorizing her. So, sadly, neither boxing nor isolating her in a little room solved Becky's problems, and her food intake just kept getting smaller and smaller. Again, this makes sense. She's just trying to control something. And then she started fainting, Mm -hmm. at which point Darren and Angie brought her to the hospital where Becky was diagnosed with anorexia and put in an inpatient treatment program at 12. Right. That breaks my heart a lot. Most of the family is extremely concerned for Becky's well-being at this point, but Nathan saw it all as a ploy for attention. So he kept saying, she's just doing this to get people to look at her. She just wants people's attention. Nothing's wrong with her. And it made him so mad that he also started calling Becky fat and lazy all the time. Oh, good. Yeah. So let me just um, clarify this situation really fast. Becky was 12, which makes Nathan 23. Right. So a full man is calling a 12-year-old with a severe eating disorder who is his stepsister fat because he thinks she's trying to steal his mommy's attention. Right. Cool, 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 cool. It's That's so... A, it's a cool person. It's so wild that he, mm-hmm. like, never grew out of that feeling. He's an adult. Yeah. Inpatient treatment for Becky was both a physical and a mental thing because she had reached a point where her body was so frail that her organs had begun to enter, like, a shutdown phase. So she was not... Well, and something was terrorizing her so badly that she felt the need to do this to herself to gain some kind of control. And she couldn't bring herself to go to school in a general population. She's having like a really, really hard time. During the course of therapy, Becky does reveal that she only felt safe at home with her parents. She did not feel safe in the outside world. And she also didn't feel safe with her brother, Nathan, which shocked her parents who reassured her that Nathan, though prickly at times, would never hurt her. By 13, Becky was back home and seemed to have overcome her struggles with food. Now, I know that eating disorders can be a lifelong struggle for many people. For the time being, Becky Watts was healthy. But because of the amount of school she had missed, returning to her solitary classroom was not really an option for her. So at 14, Becky started attending the Bristol Hospital Education Service, which is basically a school that was set up for children who had to miss a considerable amount of days due to illness. So they're at different academic levels, basically. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. There was a special place for kids who, like, you know, say you had to have chemotherapy for a long time and you missed six months of school or something. Okay. Yeah. So 
once this happened and she went to this new smaller hospital school, everything was different for her. Becky had friends and she liked going to school and she even started thinking about her future. She wanted to be an interior designer and thought she might like to maybe like go to school for that someday. She really was interested in it. She started planning to redesign her bedroom and she would make sketches and pick out artwork and she got like into stuff. Okay. She had a tight-knit group of friends with whom she spent all her free time with and talked to all the time. And then there were boys. Being the beautiful girl that Becky was, she didn't fly below the radar and teenagehood brought her into sharper focus. Did her father like this? No, he did not. Being a very pretty girl is not always easy or okay. Becky's Facebook profile, which you can still see if you want to see it, is littered with sexual comments on a lot of her pictures. And I remember Mm. texting Leslie about this because it made me so upset. And they're not like vile graphic comments. They're just like little digs and things. Like if her hands were in her lap, they'd be like, what are your hands doing right now? Like, gross. No. Facebook is public. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is just being a teen. And some of that is that people are awful. Becky had boyfriends, boyfriends, and boyfriends who wanted to be her boyfriends. So it's going pretty good for her at this point. Though she was very innocent and frequently naive. um, So her parents were really worried about the prospect of her being taken advantage of by boys. She had to have the sex talk with Angie. And Angie was, because she was like, I think I'm going to have sex. And Angie was like, um, do you? We're going to have to talk about what that is. Right. And she like explained all the birds and the bees. And Becky was like, I didn't know it went on the inside. Never mind. I know. So she's an innocent kid. I'm glad that they had that conversation. Yeah. But that just kind of proves, you know, she was, I think, 16 at the time of this conversation. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty innocent. Which is why these conversations are important to be had, people. Yeah. I mean, if you're not lucky enough to live by a sea of fucking horseshoe crabs, you may not have the excuse to do it when your kids are six. But, you know, Mm -hmm. find that in your life. So while all the suitors are piling up for Becky, the same really could not ever be said of Nathan. I'm not sure about Daniel's love life. He's a lovely looking young man. I hope he's doing well. Um, But Nathan was awkward with girls and didn't really have friends Mm -hmm. ever. The relationships he did have did not seem to end well. So he was pretty, like, intimidating with women. He seemed to make them very uncomfortable. His first girlfriend dumped him after just a few months because he was extremely jealous of any male human she talked to, Mm -hmm. and it became intolerable. But after they broke up, Nathan started showing up at her house and, like, standing and staring at her and, and basically viciously stalking her until the police had to get involved. Mm -hmm. His parents were like, what are you doing? You cannot be following this girl around before the police got involved. And he said, she owes me $400. And even like in his book, Darren's like, I don't think she owed him any dollars. I think he just wanted to do this. And that was an excuse. So it's not great. And one other thing about Nathan and girls is that he liked them young, very young. Oh, weird. Yeah, once Darren found Nathan in the driveway of their home with four girls who he said could not have been older than 13 in the back of his car. Yeah, and Darren was like, what the fuck is this? Where did you get these children from? And they were all like giggling and stuff. And he's like, oh, they just wanted to go for a ride in my car because he had like a cool car or whatever. Ew. He was 19. No. No, exactly. Like Darren was like, hell no. Hell no. You're an adult man. You cannot have these little girls in your car. And he forced him to bring them home. He's like, bring them home right now before you get arrested for kidnapping. Yeah. So that was fun. 
And then came Shauna. In 2008, Nathan told his family that he had a new girlfriend and her name was Shauna and that he'd like them to meet her. So they're like, all right, cool. New girlfriend. Hope this goes better than the last one, right? So he pulls into the driveway with Shauna in the backseat of, uh, of his car and, uh, and Darren's out there and he sees her and it is a child in the backseat of his car. A child in like a little, like a little black skirt and a little lacy top or something, which no judgment. Kids want to wear what they want to wear. But Nathan was 21, mm-hmm. and they would later find out that Shauna was 14. Oh, my God. hmm I'm looking at a picture of Shauna right now, mm-hmm. and I could see, I don't know how long it took them to find out how old she actually was, but she does have kind of an a older face. Mm-hmm. So I could see that passing for a bit because, you know, there's that weird time of like. Well, just wait. Okay. So Darren said, you cannot bring her into my house as a child. You're an, okay, you're a man. Okay. You can't. You can't do it. He goes, no, she's not a child. She's, a, she's an adult. She's fine. And he was like, no, she's not. I can tell you a child. That child still has like baby fat cheeks. She okay. is not. And and uh, Nathan is like, no. they have this argument. And Darren says to him, when you can bring me her birth certificate that shows me she is of legal age, she can come in my house. But until then, nope. So two Years later, he brings in her birth certificate, and it says that she is at that point 16. Oh, no. Which I guess in the UK is the age of consent. Like, they're yeah, an adult at that but point. but they've been dating this whole for time. For two years. And he is now only two years older as well. <laughs> yeah, she's 16, and that makes him 23, which is also gross. Yeah. I'm not okay. No, not at all. That's terrible. But eventually, Shauna wound up getting pregnant. Okay, I was wondering yep. where that baby in the and photo so, came from. Yep. And the baby <laughs> solidified her place in the family. So she has Nathan's baby. Now she is forever part of this family. And they are the kind of family that went, okay, whatever we thought before, we got to put it aside because you had our grandchild and we're just going to have to make it work. Do we know anything about Shauna's parents? Shauna also was tossed around a lot in the foster system when she was younger. Okay. Ended up living with her biological mother by the time she was 13. There's not a lot out there about this woman. Okay. They don't have a great relationship. But before they get their own home, um, Nathan and Shauna would would stay with her periodically. Right. And her comment on them was like, oh, Nathan's pretty controlling and he seems to be not great. Right, but Shauna is a child who is looking for some structure and yes, discipline and for she sure. found it in this man-child. Yep. Gross. And mom didn't seem to argue with it either. So, I mean, if I was her parent, I'd be like, uh, no, absolutely not. Get this man out of my yeah, house, child. But that's why this, why that probably happened because she didn't have a great yep. home life then. Absolutely. Okay, that's unfortunate for her. It is unfortunate. So, no matter how gross the start of their relationship was, it was there to stay now because they had a baby. But it wasn't long before another... Oh, oh, and Darren does mention that after the baby comes along, he's like, for a little while, it was actually nice. She had the baby. We helped them. She was nice to us when she came around with the baby. We were all getting along. We thought, okay, it's going to be okay. But then another stroke of bad luck befell the family. In June of 2011, after a bout of sudden blindness, Angie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. 
Her symptoms advanced quickly, and soon she was quite weak and unsteady on her feet. Mm. Nathan would become enraged and furious with Becky when she would leave anything on the floor. Like, so if she left her shoes on the floor or, like, any anything. Right, right. Meanwhile, I, I believe they said he didn't really clean up after himself fastidiously, but whatever. He would, like, scream at her and lose his mind because his mother it was going to hurt herself falling over these things mm-hmm. that Becky had left. So he was like, you are rude and disrespectful and you don't care about my mother and she's going to get hurt and you're like the worst person in the universe and you're spoiled and everything you do is for attention. Okay. Right. Meanwhile, this is also a kid who is trying to adjust all of her habits around her stepmother who was like kind of falling apart. So you're not going to immediately think, well, she's going to fall over every shoe I leave. Well, that's not what it was about. He just wanted to yell at her. Oh, for sure it was. Yeah. It was. But I'm just saying, like, even Mm -hmm. even if this was the case, even if she was falling over everything, this girl is not, her life isn't going to change on a dime. Yeah. So, anyway. And again, this is a full grown man terrorizing a fragile child Mm -hmm. because he doesn't stop there. He, like, at this point, he just lays into her all the time. He's very, like, critical of her and rude to her and says, like, weird cutting things. Um, So now, I say that Becky was fragile, but I only mean that in the sense that she'd clearly struggled before and had trouble with relationships. But she was indeed a fiery spirit at home. She was a teenager through and through. She fought with her dad. She played pranks on her dad. They would give each other, like, challenges. There's a really cute video of them, of her online that her dad took where he, like, challenged her to eat really spicy curry. And it's it's clearly, like, has a giant chili pepper in it. Right. And she eats it fast, like, not flinching. Like, it's nothing. She's, yeah. like, pounding it down. She takes the big, giant chili yeah. pepper, and it's just, like, chewing on it, just biting it and eating it. She's like, whatever, Dad. Whatever. Yeah. And then after we get, like, two minutes into it, she's like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, can't breathe. She's like, Dad, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> it, it's, it's really funny, but it shows you, like, I could never have done what she did. Right. Just sit there and put fire in your mouth, basically, and be like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? So, okay. She was spirited. That's fine. She was also sarcastic and spent a lot of time in her bedroom and rolled her eyes. But that's like a teenager thing. Yeah. That's not a you're especially terrible thing. Right. They always say teenagers at 15, they go into their bedroom and they come out at 18. No. So this is what's happening, and time is just going to march forward as it always does. Now, during Becky's arduous bout with anorexia, her brother Danny had moved back in with his mother. Okay. So it's only said that it was, like, super stressful for him, and Mm -hmm. I I think it just made life very hard. And I imagine they weren't home a lot because she was an inpatient, and, Mm -hmm. like, so he moved back in with his mother, who I guess had at this point gotten her her shit together, Mm -hmm. and everything was fine there. So, but Danny's out now, just so we know. Now it's just Becky living at home because after the birth of their child, Nathan and Shauna were able to qualify for some sort of government assistance, which provided them with housing so they can raise their child. Great, great, great. But they were by no means gone. They just had another house. In 2013, Darren and Angie finally made things official and got married. It took them all this time to get married. Right. (laughs) Becky and Shauna were both bridesmaids. Um, And the day was beautiful and happy, but it would really be the last of its kind for a good long while. Angie's condition after that got worse, and uh, she rapidly declines. 
And in 2014, it becomes clear that she needs a full-time caretaker. And since Shauna needs a job because she is a young mother who can't afford childcare, they hire her on to take care of Angie. Did she do anything really? Uh, no, not really. But she was there. So I guess that counts for something, right? And she really needed the job because at this point, Nathan had just stopped working altogether. Oh. Um, because he got himself a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which is like a painful arthritic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just said, you know, he had a backache and he could not go to work, couldn't hold a job ever, which can be a truth for some people. This is, can mm-hmm. be a painful condition, but um, we don't, we don't know that if it was that painful for him. Right. It seemed like maybe he just didn't want to work. And also, he didn't trust Shauna to ever be on her own. Mm-hmm. So everywhere he went, she had to come too. And if she was at work, he had to be there with her the whole time. I hate that. Yep. Yeah. Um, but she's not like qualified to be a caretaker, no! right? So she was just no. like... This is the family was... going, hey, why don't you come over and take care of Angie in the afternoons and we'll give you some money. You can bring the baby. It's our grandchild. She's just there to like be in the house and then call somebody that can actually help. Well, she was supposed to help. She was supposed to like do cleaning for them and do some laundry and like housework that she couldn't do. Right. But I'm also thinking like as a care, she's not, she can't be a caretaker to Angie. No, 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 no. She was just there to help. Okay. And because like Angie couldn't perform like household duties, she was going to do some of those and probably do things like make sure she didn't fall in the shower or, you know. Okay. But she didn't do any of that because Darren goes on to be like, I came home and gave her a shower every night and I did all of the things. She didn't really do them. Right. So. Okay. They were trying to help their family out, give them a little money and give yeah. her a job. That's what it was. And Nathan and Shauna's relationship when they were home was not exactly a bed of roses either. Nathan was apparently controlling and jealous. He never wanted Shauna to see any of her friends, especially dudes, but any of them. And he liked to control everything about their living situation, the finances, the food. Even what Shauna, when she was allowed to smoke a cigarette, like he would hold them and she'd have to ask him for one and give her one. This is gross. I know, I hate it. Shauna, for her part, was pleasant enough to most of the family, except for Becky. She was also extremely rude to Becky. Becky would do this thing where she would order clothes online and if something didn't fit or she didn't like it, she'd be like, hey, Shauna, do you want this jacket or do you want these pants? And she'd be like, well, it probably looks disgusting on you anyway, so I guess I'll take it. Ew. Yeah, she was. So they were just all mean to her. Yeah, they were super mean to her. And since Shauna was not allowed to be anywhere on her own, as I mentioned, Nathan was always at their house during the day. So they're just there all the time. And they ate all their meals there. Yeah, yeah. And they borrowed money. And I don't even know where the baby was during any of this. They never mentioned the baby. Where the fuck is the baby? I mean, it's just probably with them, I would assume. Well, if it's in the house in a few days, there's a big problem. Yeah. But they don't ever mention that. It's not mentioned anywhere, which is wild to me. It also says to me, like, did they lose custody of the baby in some way or something? But I don't think so. So anyway, this this also gave Nathan constant access to Becky, who he decided um, he, you know, wanted to terrorize. And so he started constantly jumping out and startling her, like, all the time. Just hiding behind corners and, and doorways and just right. jumping out at her. And not in like a fun way. No, like no, 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 no. Yeah. She did not like it. And she made that clear. He would also jump out, grab her by the shoulders and just scream into her face. This is like psychological torture because that yes. puts someone in a state of being so paranoid that you like can't exist because you literally think someone is going to jump out at you at yeah, any moment. Of course. That's terrible. This is scary. It is scary. It puts you in such a heightened sense of being that like you can't function well. 
And Darren did scold him for this, but he just kind of shrugged it off and was like, it's funny. It's not fucking funny. So now at this point, we are back to the same situation as we were in in the beginning when we started this. It's 2015. This is what their life is like. And Becky has gone missing. Okay. So the reason that they even came to the house that day, Angie, or not Angie, but Shauna and Nathan, was to do their caretaking. The caretaking. Yes, exactly. So that's why they knew where the hide a key was. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were in the house when she returned. Okay. Because they said, oh, they just went over there early and they were there when she got back. But they were just watching TV and like eating chips. Okay. So Becky has been missing for a couple days now. Police then start searches. This is the 21st. They focus on a number of properties in Barton Hill, Southmead, St. George's Park, and Troopers Hill Nature Reserve. So they're spreading out and they're looking everywhere. Uh, Now, in addition to police searches, there were a ton of civilian searches as well. They also did all like open spaces and parks too. Okay. So they went to any kind of like natural area and they went door to door and asked about if people had seen Becky. Like they're doing the thing. They're knocking on doors. They're out there. Neighbors are out looking everywhere they can. They're looking in, like, the the local ponds and, um, you know, woods behind houses and stuff. People are just everywhere. So they also begin to paper the neighborhoods with posters and flyers. Um, And this is Darren's family, like, made a whole bunch of them and went out and they put them everywhere. So word is out everywhere. And And at this point in time, his original post about his missing daughter, Darren's, has been shared, like, 850 times. So... And the police put up their own Facebook post that is widely circulated. This is like a missing poster. Word is out. They are doing it. So after a couple days of searches, Darren and Angie are approached by the police. And they said, listen, we want to come in and do a, a comprehensive search of your home. So we're going to have to put you in, uh, in a hotel because we have to tear everything apart, basically. And you don't need to be here for that. To be clear, they never suspected Darren and Angie. That's not a thing. They really were just putting them in a hotel so they could look in the house. Mm -hmm. So in doing this, they discovered on Becky's, the trim on her doorway near the bottom, there were spots of blood and fingerprints in the blood, which they would later go on to discover were Nathan's. Oh, boy. Fingerprints. Okay. Yep. So at this point, Nathan and Shauna had been brought in to be questioned. Everyone is questioned at first, right? And they give their their story. We went to the house. We got in the house. I went outside to smoke a cigarette. I heard the door close. That's when she probably left. We never saw her again. Okay. And then they, they begin to press them in these interrogations, which you can watch in the documentary. And they are painful. Because first of all, Shauna is laughing and smiling the whole time. She's like very chipper. And Nathan is acting like he just, like, doesn't know his ass from his elbow. Mm-hmm. And then they they ask things like, well, how was your relationship? And they're both like, well, she was a really shitty little asshole. We don't like her. She was so mean to Angie. She's, like, horribly mean to her. And just, like, a really bratty, attention-getting kid. We didn't like her. She was a bad person. But, like, we don't know what happened. Right. Ugh. Okay. The other thing that happened with their stories is that they became, like, very inconsistent. They wouldn't be able to say, now I've said this before that liars tell the same exact thing with every detail every time. People telling the truth can't remember tiny things, but these were bigger things that they were not doing well answering. And so the police are like, you look fishy to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they held them as much as they could. They wanted to keep them there. Also, if their story was as simple as we got there 
We didn't see her at all. She, like, just assumed she was in her bedroom. We don't, as you know, we we don't like her. So we just didn't even bother to talk to her yeah. when we got there. And then I heard the door shut and just assumed she was going out with her friends and was like, thank, you know, thank yeah. God she's gone. And that was it. If that was just the story, then, like, what else could they mess up on? So the fact that now they're, like, not telling the same story every yeah. time, I feel like that would be fishy. They do things, too, like, when Nathan's being talked to her, he's like, I think she was, I don't, maybe it was, like, 11, I don't know, it was, I can't, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's clearly struggling to talk. Yeah. It's not someone that was like, you know, it could have been 11.15 and I said 11. I'm sorry, I don't. It wasn't that. It was someone that was having a moment. Right. So the police are like, how do we keep them here? Because clearly these people have done something. Yeah. So the police then, when when the results come back and they find out that it's Nathan's fingerprint, they can arrest them. So they bring them in, arrest them on suspicion or whatever. And then they go to search Nathan and, and Shauna's house. Now, first of all, their house is a hoarder's den. I can only imagine. It was just wall-to-wall <laughs> stuff because Nathan had also been taking in broken appliances and stuff he found on the street saying he was going to fix it and then sell it. Oh, that sounds about right. Behavior we've seen in other people like this before. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's just trash everywhere. The police notice it's filthy and full of clutter except for the bathtub, which is very, very clean. Oh. Clean enough to see your reflection in. So it has clearly been recently cleaned and with great enthusiasm. Further search efforts discovered a receipt from a local hardware store. Um, I think it's a hardware store. It's called the B&Q and they talk about it a lot. I feel like it's a Lowe's or something. Okay. Whatever. And the receipt is from the day Becky went missing. And it is for a circular saw, <gasps> gloves, goggles, and face masks. Oh, my God. Pretty sinister. <laughs> yeah. They find also time-stamped CCTV footage from the B&Q, which shows them purchasing these items. They're also buying cleaning products. Oh, my God. Yep. Eventually, police held these cards for a while. They didn't tell them this for a little while. They're just trying to get them to talk. And eventually, bit by bit, they tell them, like, we found your fingerprint in her blood. Mm-hmm. Well, we found these receipts. We we know shit. And they know, they said, you know, we know you were involved in her disappearance and we think you're dead. That she's dead, I mean, sorry. Right. And, and you're, and you're dead. <laughs> After that, he goes and sees his solicitor, which is the British lawyer, and confesses. And they write out a confession letter together because he says he can't say it. And then when the police read it to him in his next interrogation, he says, can I cover my ears or do I have to listen to it? I don't want to hear what I said. No, you can't cover your fucking ears. Listen to it. I know. Hate that. so bratty. Oh, I know. He totally is. And he's not a kid. He's an adult. He's almost 30. Yeah. It is wild that he's that old. Oh, Um, wait, wait. Sorry. Uh, How old is he at this point? Like 27. Okay. So his frontal lobe is now fully developed. No excuses. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So the letter says that basically it's just... It's just basic information about the crime. He says he killed Becky. He didn't mean to. It was an accident. He then got scared, cut her body up into pieces, wrapped them up in plastic, put them in boxes, and then paid his neighbor to keep these boxes in his shed. (gasps) A word on the neighbors who did get jail time in the end for this. They Is this the McMurphys? It is the McMurphys. (laughs) Yeah. They, I believe them, to be honest with you, they were like, listen, he gave us 10,000 pounds. I don't know where he said he was going to. I don't know where he would get that money from. But we thought he had robbed something. 
We thought we were hiding stolen goods. Yes, that is wrong. We get it. We did not know it was a 16-year-old girl's body. And part of me is like, yeah, you probably didn't know that. That's I'm wild. Sure. There's no way you knew. Yeah. So anyway. Oh, my God. They were like, we thought maybe it was like, you know, some electronics or something. Yeah, because he has all of those electronics. Yeah, so and he's got all that sense. stuff. They thought it was yeah. like a box of stolen goods. Yeah. It, which is shady, but not that. Yeah. So anyway, police go to this shed in this neighbor's backyard and they find exactly what Nathan said they would find. Wow. So first... I'm going to read to you from the book exactly how this was described in court by the people who found it. Um, and first, they were speaking to Detective Sergeant John Dowding. And he said, quote, the shed was full. Just to the right of the door was a blue plastic bag with a rucksack on top of it and a number of suitcases. The officer and I then opened the large suitcase nearest the door and found a number of items inside. They appeared to be parcels of cling film with plastic bags, and the bags had numerous parcels inside. They pulled out one of the smaller parcels about the size of a rugby ball to see what the item was. I examined the parcel by feeling it. I tried squeezing and manipulating it to see what was inside. It was squashy, but there was something harder within the squashy material. We tried unwrapping the parcel to confirm what the contents were. After two to three layers of cling film, it was apparent that it was a right hand and the fist was clenched and severed at the wrist. <sighs> so, then we move on to forensic pathologist Dr. Deborah Cook, who is going to describe the scene for us a little more in detail. She said that she had looked first in a bla black and gray suitcase, which had been removed from the garden shed in Barton Court. So this is, everything's brought into the medical examiner, basically. The outside packaging was an ASDA carrier bag, Inside that was cling film, and then inside that was duct tape and further wraps of cling film and thick blue plastic wrapped in silver duct tape. So this is not an emergency rush job. This is done well. Right, okay. And meticulously. The head was inside that plastic bag, and there was clear tape over the face. The head was covered with damp white crystals. We would later find out that this was um, baking soda and cat litter. Something he had read online would make the smell go away. So it took Dr. Cook almost an hour to list all of the different injuries that Becky sustained, but they included 14 cuts and bruises to her face, which were consistent with a hand being placed over her face to suffocate her. There were also the 15, uh, she had 15 stab wounds on her body, wow. which were inflicted post-mortem. Oh. Yep. Um, they said they found her left arm and right hand had been stored with her head in one of the suitcases. And the pathologist then said that she examined the contents of a blue plastic box. And she said that underneath several layers of clothing, plastic bags, and cling film, she discovered that there was a plastic sack. So this is like a, like a bag, grocery bag type thing. It said, it's my birthday, wacky warehouse on it. And then under that, there was a white shower curtain. And under the curtain, a human torso. Ooh. Yep. Um, she explained, Dr. Cook did, that Becky would have had a fight or flight reaction when she was being suffocated to death because they later determined that that's how she died. She suffocated. And that's not an easy death. We've talked about this before. Strangling and suffocation are not quick. Um, and so she would have been like fighting like crazy for her life. And she knew how to fight. So she would have been going for it. 
um, Dr. Cook also said that the way some of her body parts had been packed uh, with cat litter and table salt, so it wasn't baking soda, which acts as a preservative. So that's great. So yeah, that was the discovery of Becky's body. so sad. Yeah, so the medical examiners basically pieced together that how she would have died would have been she was attacked, suffocated. She fought with her attacker during the suffocation. Her attacker eventually won and overtook her. Then she was stabbed 15 times and cut into a bunch of pieces which were tightly wrapped a million times and put in a box. That is rough. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Nathan had killed her in her home. And what he told police was an attempt to scare her straight so that she wouldn't be so rude and abusive to his mother anymore. He is so messed up. This is his story. He says that he and Shauna arrived at Becky's house after Angie had left for her doctor's appointment because they knew that no one else would be home. And Shauna immediately went outside to smoke a cigarette and then, I guess, became blind and deaf and smoked 25 cigarettes Um, because he said Shauna never had anything to do with it and didn't know. Right. Yeah. Bullshit. So Nathan then put on a mask and knocked on the door of Becky's room. Now, he had a bag with him with all this stuff, like the tape and the, and the everything, and several stun guns, which I don't think he ended up using, but he did have them. Um, so he was planning to do something if he bought uh, several stun guns, obviously. Yeah. And they found them later. He did okay. have them. So did he, did he buy all that stuff before? before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then. Yeah. So... He knocked on the door and he was like, can I talk to you? And Becky was like, yeah, just a minute. And she came to the door and he like grabbed her and just started taping her mouth shut. Oh. Yeah. And then he handcuffed her and like forced her on her knees and yelled at her and told her to get into a suitcase. And she was like, no, I'm not going to get a suitcase. So then they started fighting about this situation and his mask slipped off. And he's like, now she knows who I am. Not by talking to her. You talk to her every fucking day of your life. You think she doesn't know who you are? So he got scared because she saw his identity and he ended up fighting with her and accidentally strangling her. And then the whole time Shauna's outside doesn't know anything's going on. Then he um, puts her in the suitcase anyway and zips her up, carries her to her car, his car, and puts the whole shebang in his trunk. Mm. Then he goes back inside and hangs out. So when Angie came home, when Darren came home, when the friends came over, Becky was in the trunk. Wow. Mm -hmm. But Shauna didn't know. Didn't know. Yeah. And then when they got home, he told her that the bathroom was clogged and he was going to be in there for a while and he had to unclog the bathroom. And the cops were like, "Uh, with a circular saw? Wasn't that rather loud? And Shauna was like, well, he had to fix the bathroom. Right. <clears throat> so then he brought the body into the bathroom and said so he stabbed it in attempts to drain the fluids from the body in like a field dressing deer situation where he's just trying to like, this is a very Ed Gein move, but he did it poorly. Right. Um, and then he took the circular saw um, and cut it into pieces. And later the the medical examiner was like, it looks, her, her body had been cut into eight different pieces. That's okay. a lot. And they said, like, this would be very difficult to do on your own. 
very difficult for one person to do this and negotiate this body in all these places. But he did it in the bathtub, which is why the bathtub was the one clean place in the house. Of course. Because then they had meticulously cleaned it. Uh, you know, he wrapped it all up, put them in the box, went over to the neighbors and was like, I need you to put this in your shed. And the neighbors were like, thank you for the money or the money that's coming to me. Bye. Shauna did not see any. Yeah, yeah. And then she was just like, she didn't like Becky, but she was worried about her. She shared their Facebook status. Yeah, this isn't going to fly. No, it didn't. Not even a little bit at all. Um, and the police also said, like, what did you think was going to happen if this went right? You were going to carry her into the woods in a suitcase and then what? He was like, I was going to tell her that she has to change who she is and she has to behave better and be kind to people or something worse would happen to her next time. And they were like, and then what? She was going to walk home? Do you think she didn't know that was you? Right. He just had nothing better to say. And all of Shauna's, um, she still insists that she didn't have anything to do with it. She was like, I didn't know. I just, I didn't know. Nevertheless, they were both um, put on trial for murder. Cops were like, great, you still killed this girl. Murder it is. Mm -hmm. And no matter what Shauna says, she was there and she did pervert the course of justice because she did tell some lies and stuff. Absolutely. So there's no going around it. Yeah. And they're not like married, so no. it's not even like, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's like he, like, not like he can't tell on his wife or something. So then we go to trial, right? And during the trial, a lot more is revealed. Mm. And the um, prosecution finds out through investigation, obviously, that both Nathan and Shauna had like a huge library of pornography, which fine, like your porn, do what you got to do. But their pornography um, was all focused around very, very young-looking girls in painful and frightening situations. Okay. Yeah, it was something they apparently shared an interest in, and there was an excessive amount of it. But that would make sense because she was groomed at such a young age to, yep. like, she's looking at herself. Mm -hmm. So why would that be weird to her? Yeah. So to her, she's probably just like, well, this is just kind of like S&M stuff because she is probably still set back it gets in her a being. Lot farther than that. No, I know, but yeah. she's she's been groomed at this point. Yeah, no, and I I do think there's a, a lot of um in in ways she was probably a victim of his as well. Yeah. But I also think she did a lot more than she says she did. I oh, think of she was course. involved yeah. in this. In in addition to that, um there's a ton of text messages out there between the two of them like I saw, it would be like Shauna texting Nathan, like, I saw a really hot girl at the grocery store. She was very young and I was going to like, like murder her and bring her home for you. And he would be like, bitch, why didn't you do it? Now, there are a lot of exchanges like that where they talk about like, I just can't wait to like murder a teenage girl and bring her home. Oh, and they funny. all look kind of like Becky. Mm, so okay. they thought it would be like super hot to murder some children together. Gross. And their Facebook conversations are all, like, grossly sexual, too. <laughs> and then on the day of Becky's murder, there's also, um, I mean, Shauna's looked for some questionable things. But she also looked up a fun little parody music video from the Disney film Frozen. So it's like, you know, like a parody of it. And she wanted to sing it to her boyfriend to cheer him up. And it went something like this. Ready? Do you want to hide a body? I'm not kidding. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And in court, when she's asked about this, she goes, I'm a very sarcastic person. And it's just unfortunate timing that that was there. <laughs> okay. Is it? Great. Okay. So 
This is all pretty damning. Let's get down to brass tacks. On November 11th, 2015, after just three hours and 27 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Nathan guilty of murder and Shauna guilty of manslaughter. Both were also convicted of conspiracy to kidnap, perverting the course of justice, preventing the lawful burial of a body, and possession of two stun guns. Um, the neighbor, neighbor boys? Mm-hmm. Oh, they are neighbor boys. Neighbor boys. I know. Um, they were cleared of assisting an offender, which just means they, the courts believed that they didn't know it was a body. Right. Um, they, were, they were given like a couple years of suspended sentences or something. Not a lot. 16 months, I think somebody got because they knew they were doing something illegal. They just didn't know it was a body. Then on November 13th, um, Nathan was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 33 years. And Shauna was sentenced to 17 years in prison. In his sentencing remarks, we have a sassy judge. The judge agreed that the prosecution's belief was... So the prosecution came out in their closing statement and said, okay, we believe that what happened is this was a planned kidnapping and murder that these two people executed for sexual thrills. They -hmm. wanted to do this thing together, and clearly they were fixated with little teenage girls. And they did say they believed that Shauna had been persuaded to participate in this. They didn't say it was her idea, but she did participate. So the judge says, I agree with the prosecution. That is what it looked like happened. Um, They planned out this murder, so premeditated, and they carried it out for fun. The judge also added, Finally, I should like to pay public tribute to the family of Becky for the dignified way in which they conducted themselves throughout these proceedings. And then he continued with, hearing the evidence during the trial has been difficult for everyone, but it is plain that has been immense burden for the family. So they were actually amazing in court. They sat through and listened to all of it and like were right. really together. Okay. Um, so they are both in jail. And you will, anybody who is not happy with them will be, will be happy to know that they are not being treated well in jail. They have both been, like, uh, attacked by other inmates on numerous occasions. They are not well-received there. Interesting. Yeah. Well, she's a kid. Yeah. They don't like people that fuck with kids in jail. Mm-hmm. And their their sentence was clearly for, like, doing this because it was sexy fun. Right. So, anyway, a little postscript on this story, too. This was found out after the trial, after the sentencing, after everything. Um, it was revealed that Becky did actually try to get help before she died and not just because of Nathan. Becky shared concerns that she had with a staff member at her high school. So it's a hospital. She, people, there's probably social work and stuff. And that she said she had been sending sexy texts mm-hmm. and then nude photographs to a male classmate of hers. And then they ended their sexy relationship or whatever. And he got angry and said that he was going to publish these photos on the internet. Okay. And this was done, all of these conversations were on WhatsApp. Right. Which I did not understand very well. <laughs> so Leslie had to explain it to me. So it's a, it's like a messaging situation. Yeah, it's just, it's another way to, to text. So you could do everything from text messaging, calling, making, sending audio files, sending videos, but it's all for free. So it doesn't matter. You could do it across the globe. Okay. And and so those that didn't have unlimited texting, yeah. which isn't that common anywhere else but the U.S., these are yeah. like the apps that they use. 
But also, like, you know how Messenger now or Instagram, like, I remember Instagram wasn't really, like, a place where you had full conversations with people. Yeah. I actually feel like they used to, like, disappear. And you like can't Snapchat. really, like, add a photo to it. Yeah. And then, like, um, and then, again, with Messenger, Messenger wasn't always the app that it is now. Yeah. So, like, WhatsApp was just a way to not have to pay for data when you sent things. And it's texting, though. It's not like a social media platform. It's just, yeah, it's just for, yeah, it's just through the phone. So I don't, you might also be able to make phone calls with mm-hmm. it, but it's all within the app and only over Wi-Fi. Okay. So this, this, that's how they were talking and sending sexy pictures. So mm-hmm. that's how he had them and he was going to share them. It's also, so WhatsApp too, we found out it, that's like an encrypted one yes. as well. So it's easy. It's not easy to like go in and it's separate. Like you wouldn't, mm-hmm. a parent wouldn't see on their phone bill that you've been texting or Got calling it. somebody. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense, especially if you're sending mm-hmm. nudes. Mm-hmm. So she, she spoke to, you know, a, a school employee and said she didn't want to talk to the police because she was afraid of, you know, them telling him and her life being miserable for it because she's somebody who's been a victim of bullies before and probably terrified. Also terrified that she, her parents are going to find out. She's been sending naughty pictures because her parents never knew. The high school didn't contact her parents. They talked to this boy. They, like, gave him a talking to, and that's it. Nothing else happened. Which is so weird they didn't yeah. contact the parents because I would think that that's, like, a learning experience of, like, internet safety. Also, it's, like, a mandatory report type thing. I, I mm-hmm. just can't. It was also found out that she did go to several other, like, um, confidential report places. I feel like they were, like, centers where you could get free therapy or like your guidance counselor Mm -hmm. or something like that. And she talked about Nathan to these people. She said, like, I'm being terrorized at home. I don't know what to do and all this stuff. And again, they did not report to her parents. There are like eight different organizations that she went to and none of them said anything to parents. Right. She didn't want, I think she didn't want that involvement because she was afraid of it. She just wanted help in some way. Mm-hmm. But as as an adult and a professional in that situation, you want to think one of them would have thought, we have to intervene. There's no way. I know. I guess that's interesting because I do find that it's like on the parents to like ask the the these th- if they know their kid is like going to therapy or seeing their guidance counselor. This or something is like, like mandatory that. hospital school, and she yeah. uh, had been there for like an eating disorder and stuff. I know, so. but I guess like they're also not allowed to like. Yeah, it's like a discuss, breach of confidentiality yeah, it's like or HIPAA laws. Yeah, like they can't. Yeah, they can't say that stuff. And so if she is, if she is asking them not that she's going to them for advice and help, mm-hmm. and she doesn't want her parents involved. As long as she isn't saying that she wants to hurt herself, and I don't know that she maybe thought that her brother would hurt her in that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. She could have been holding back a little bit. Yeah. And so maybe there wasn't a fear there that she was, like, going to die. I don't know. Because I would assume that if they thought she was, like, in physical danger, they would have then said yeah, something. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't you know. know. At least that's what I would hope. I hope there wasn't, like, any negligence. I hope I hope not either. So she did she did try to find confidential help. It just didn't work. Yeah. And it was also revealed during the trial that she spoke to remember her friend Courtney who knew where all the stuff was in her room? Yes. She spoke to Courtney 
about how afraid she was of Nathan. And she told her in confidence that when her parents weren't around, he would sit there and tell her in graphic detail how he wanted to kill her. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this was not a panic response that he had. He wanted to kill her. Yeah. The last twist on this case is that it was also later revealed that during, I guess, these confidential reports that she made that Nathan was terrorizing her for years. There are two suspected incidents where he sexually molested her. He had ju- the, the things he said to her in, confid- in private were way worse than the things the family heard. So it was a lot worse for her, I think, than anybody knew or could tell. And she wouldn't say anything because she was terrified of him. Right. And the family isn't sold on the fact that this was like a fun sexual game between Nathan and Shauna. They are still, they still say they don't know why he did this. They're very much like, I don't know. This is like the solution the prosecution came up with. They said our evidence says that they made this little game out of it, but we don't know that's what it was. We know they did this horrible, violent act, but we just don't know why. So I thought it was kind of interesting that the family had it laid out like that, but they're kind of like, well, that's not why. We want a why. Right. So it's solved, but there's also questions that still kind of hang in the air. And they say it in like every interview. So I guess there's something to it. And um, I also found this little footnote really beautiful. Um, They put up like a GoFundMe for Becky's funeral because they couldn't really afford anything big for her. And they raised a lot of money. And so they took this money and they said, well, she doesn't get to have a wedding and she doesn't get to have a, a 18th birthday party and she doesn't get these beautiful things that she wanted. So they made her funeral like this beautiful fairy tale. She was carried in this white coffin in an old tiny hearse with like, like all the glass windows that were pulled by white horses with feathered headdresses and stuff. I'm gonna cry. I know. It was, that's when I cried for like... I cried my eyes out when I read it. Like the neighbors all came out and threw flowers. Her dad released a dove. It was really beautiful. And they just were like, well, we don't ever get to do this. So we're going to make this day as beautiful as we can. So I thought that was a really, really pretty thing that they were able to do for her. Yeah. Instead of making it so gloomy, which is a hard thing with funerals. It is. And then um, afterwards, they they had already like booked her birthday party and they had it anyway. And all her friends came and they had this big party and they danced and they just like kind of celebrated her. So it's really nice. Yeah. Um, Also, they have like a big, beautiful bench in the local park and there were trees planted and stuff. There's a lot of beautiful memorials to her. So great. People, um, people still say her name and she's out there. But yeah, it's, uh, that's the story. Wow. It's a wild one. Yeah, it's so sad. And it does feel, so you like always want to see where you could have prevented it. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like one of those weird things where you just don't. Yeah. Like, the family doesn't want to think that, that their son would kill their no, daughter. No, you never want to think that. So it's, it is, and obviously she was keeping some information down. Yeah. But then also, you know, Anytime that she had maybe mentioned some things, she just might not have felt as not even supported, but like, or and not even like necessarily that nobody believed her. But it is scary. I mean, you're also talking about your stepbrother and being like, who's probably saying, if you tell, I'm going to graphically murder you. Yeah. So, and Angie is like, 
in bed rest. Like, she's, she's sick. Like, she's sick on yeah. like, her deathbed. Yeah, basically. I know. It's not. It, it, the reason mapping out so many details of this situation yeah. is important is because I feel that they all added up in the concealment mm-hmm. of what was happening in that house. Because they were attentive. Yeah. They're very attentive parents. Right. They didn't like not take care of their child. Yeah, I think, again, one of the things I always find in these episodes mm-hmm. now is this was one of those recipe for disasters where, yep. it, you know, Nathan on his own might never have done this. Who knows? But yeah. Nathan with Shauna and like and having this like access, access and support system of like, yes, let's mm-hmm. be let's both be really brutal. And they're bouncing off yep. of each other. And then you know, whether it was a fantasy of theirs or mm-hmm. just something like they went into some other world. Yeah, absolutely. I And I would be interested to find out if there was like whatever, like psychologically was going on with them about it or, you know, yeah. just really what dark place Nathan got himself into once his mother met. Darren and Becky came into the picture, like, you know, like. Or is that even when it started? Right. He could have just always exactly. been kind of off. We don't really know mm-hmm. much about him because the book is written from Darren's perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I know his mother was absolutely tortured and they're still married. It didn't ruin their marriage. Good. Which, because it's like a stepchild situation, mm-hmm. is a struggle. Right. It was her son who killed his daughter. Mm-hmm. But she was probably just as torn She up. was. She was. Of oh course. my God. She definitely was. But that's the other thing. That's why I think it's important to lay out the fact that Nathan was close to his stepfather. He didn't hate him. They didn't have like a weird resentful he relationship. He just hated Becky. They, yeah, just Becky. Yeah. It's unfortunate, you know, and I know that there isn't much out there on him, which that's fine, but I could only guess that they're part of the reason Daniel may have wanted to also leave the home is because he was witnessing just it being really uncomfortable in there. Could be, yeah. And, but, and I wouldn't suspect that he knew the full details, but. You like your siblings know that weird shit's going on sometimes, yeah. and and he was not, super friendly with Nathan. Nathan was really friendly yeah. to him. He just mm-hmm. hated his sister, right? So there was just the levels of things being uncomfortable. Yep, I'm sure. Yeah, it was really sad. Yeah, it's super sad. Okay, well, thank you, Holly. You're very welcome. Uh, toast, toast, the toast. This is <laughs> toast. This is so obviously to Becky. Beautiful young Becky. Becky. I will post pictures of her, and I there are pictures of her funeral that are really beautiful. And I don't normally post stuff like that, but this is a little different. Okay. So, cheers. And their whole family. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously not the other two, but to Darren and Angie and everybody who supported them and their community who really, like, came out in force to to get this solved. So, cheers to them Mm -hmm. all. To the boyfriend, too, because I feel like he really reached out to all the friends and yeah. was like, this is, he knew he something did. was wrong. Oh, and yeah, I feel like he, he was really part of trying to find her sooner than maybe they would have. Darren also asked him to be a pallbearer. Yeah. Great. Okay. And we have a new patron this oh, week. Oh, on a happy note. I know. So we did a post about it on one of our stories. Oh, yeah. We were having a lovely <laughs> pool day and then I got a, uh, a alert on my phone that we got a new patron. So yes, yeah. Uh, so a big cheers to Amanda Bro. Amanda Bro, cheers, Amanda. Amanda's lovely. Yes, she grooms our dogs too. She's the greatest. She really is. Is that all we have? That's all. All right. 
And if we were terrorized by the monster in our closet, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Pretty sinister.